What's going on, everybody? It's Paul Fritschner, and thanks for tuning in to episode three of Paul's Points. If you haven't done so already, you can go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, and make sure that you subscribe. Also, while you're there, leave a review. I'd love to know what you like listening to, what you enjoy about this podcast, so I can keep doing whatever you all enjoy. I'm here for you all, and thanks for listening. On today's episode, full episode number three, because of the recent news that we're going to have baseball, folks, baseball is back, finally, after everything, all of the talk and the negotiations back and forth between the players and the owners over the last month, finally, we have baseball. It's going to be a 60-game season. You'll play 40 games against the teams within your division, so... Uh, 10 teams against each divisional opponent, and then the other 20 games will be against the teams from your geographic uh, division uh, pairing. So, for example, the NL East will play the AL East. The NL Central will play the AL Central. NL West will play the AL West for those interleague games. I think it's a good setup. Uh, the legitimacy of a 60-game season, I think, is probably going to be debated for a long time, but that's for an entirely different podcast. For now... All we got to focus on, all you have to know is that baseball is back. Sadly, I don't think there's going to be a minor league season. I think that's pretty set in stone, especially with the way that rosters are going to expand for the major league season. I just don't see a minor league season happening, which is a huge bummer. Um, but it's just the hand we've been dealt for the summer, and at least baseball coming back is better than not having baseball at all. Man, what a fall it's going to be. Baseball, basketball, hockey, all coming back within about a week of each other. Then football's around the corner. Golf is going to be ramping up into their majors soon. It is going to be quite a few months, assuming the coronavirus doesn't get too much worse and all the sports are able to play as they're scheduled. It could be a wild, wild few months in the sports world after so much time off. It's all the way back in March since we've had one of the big four sports here in the United States. But, like I said, because baseball is back, I thought I'd do a baseball interview on today's episode of Pulse Points. It's Seattle Mariners broadcaster Aaron Goldsmith. Started with the radio with them, does TV as well for the Mariners, and he's a growing star in the industry. He's become a big name in broadcasting, especially out on the West Coast with the Mariners and doing some Pac-12 basketball through Fox as well. I met him at Xavier when he was doing a Xavier game on FS1. We've stayed in contact, and he's been a huge help to me, and he's a great interview. Uh, went back and forth for about 90 minutes, and I think... Baseball fans in general will really enjoy this because he gave some great perspective about some different things he's seen with the minor leagues, uh, going through the minor leagues and getting to the major leagues. Aspiring broadcasters, I think, will especially enjoy this uh, just because, like I said, some of the things he talked about of how he got from the minor leagues to the major leagues and now being in the major leagues, what he thinks was the biggest key to him getting there. One of the biggest things that I thought uh, stuck out, which you'll hear in this interview that you'll hear him talk about, was when he was with the Pawtucket Red Sox, which a lot of people consider to be the cradle of minor league broadcasting. When he was in Pawtucket, he sent a blind resume and demo to the Seattle Mariners, which I think gives a lot of validation to what a lot of broadcasters in the minor leagues feel like. When you send a broadcast tape to a team or to an employer, are they actually listening to what you're sending them? 
Well, Aaron gives a little validation to that. He saw that the Mariners job was open. He just saw it on SCAA and he sent them his tape. They listened. He went out for an interview. He described the interview process in this in this uh, podcast and it was incredible. He got the job and he's been there since and lives in Seattle with his family. Great setup for him. Really enjoyed this conversation. He's great, as always. I think you all will love it just as much as I did. Extremely entertaining. And if you want to watch it, because there's a few times that we talk about things that are in the background of where he's sitting, if you want to watch this interview in its entirety, you can go to my YouTube channel. Just search Paul Fritchner. You can subscribe there while you're at it. And you can visualize some of the things we're talking about. Um, just a couple of things in the beginning and then a couple of things that I asked him about, some memorabilia that were behind him in the camera shot that we uh, touched on through the interview. But here we go with episode three of Paul's Points. It is Seattle Mariners broadcaster Aaron Goldsmith. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on with me and joining me this afternoon. Uh, I'm doing nothing else, Paul. It's my pleasure. <laughs> uh, well, we'll get into the hard-hitting stuff first couple questions for you first of all uh what are you doing about your hair and who's cutting it during this you know thank you thank you for your paul thank you for your concern and the humanity for asking the most important (laughs) question right from the top it's tough man i mean this is like thankfully uh all those near and dear to me are happy and healthy right now um which is i'm very grateful for uh we are uh hunkered down here in seattle just like basically the rest of the world at this point uh, but I will say, man, the beneath the surface, like the hardest part of this has got to be like, how long can I go without a haircut? I mean, Paul, you, you are very, you appear to be very easy to maintain up top. Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm low maintenance in general. Yeah. I, I would agree. I mean, look, <laughs> I mean, you have one, you have like a let's go Xavier free, you know, card yeah. from a basketball game as your decoration. I mean, that's. Well, so that's, that was my follow-up question we're renovating right now and this like studio here uh doubles as my bedroom in about eight hours and i was thinking of what i wanted to do to decorate the back because you have this elaborate uh office of yours with you know uh replica seats and a signed book from uh, Bob Paul, Costas. that's very offensive they're not replica they're real all right don't please oh that's well oh, even highly even, highly offensive well, we're getting off to a strong start here but, <laughs> i I'm thinking, you know, what do I put on these walls? And then I was thinking, well, what if I put up like everybody that I've had on? And then I was like, well, I don't want to sleep with a bunch of people's pictures over my head. So I don't know. I'm willing to take interior decoration uh, tips from you, but what I will say, I will say, since it's the only thing on your wall, it automatically draws the attention. So, (laughs) and did you strategically place it right there? Like, did you sit down, like looking, looking the computer screen, like I need to move it up a little bit, move it to the left a little bit. A little bit. I just kind of made sure it was level, too. Yeah, no, it's nice. You, you did a good job. Well, thanks. I spent a lot of time and effort. Like I said, it was free. <laughs> Monetary investment, slim. Time right. investment, slim. But it adds yeah, a little bit. Imp- I, a huge impact, I would say. Huge impact. Yeah. yeah. Well, Aaron, uh, to get into a couple of things here, you are a broadcaster for the Mariners, but you've had a long career in the minor leagues um, to then get to where you are in Seattle. and the main thing that I want to talk about with you is how you got there and the specifics of what you did to get through the minor leagues and get your major league job. And also to parlay that with a high level college basketball schedule too. You're doing a lot 
I met you when you did a game at Xavier uh, last year, but you're doing a lot of Pac-12. I know you did a lot of uh, Washington games this year, Pac-12 stuff, um, especially being out there in, in Seattle. So I want to start off with where you were. You came out of college as a history major, correct? And then yeah, parlayed that yeah. in, into a uh, Frontier League baseball job. Yes. Proud Frontier League alum, the Gateway you got Grizzlies. That right. You bet. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I went to college as a history major, excuse me, as a business major. And I was a business major until uh, end of my sophomore year, early junior year. I just didn't like it. I, I, I didn't enjoy it. I couldn't retain, like I would take an accounting class and then we'd have winter break and I'd come back in the spring and I couldn't remember anything from the accounting class. I just wasn't into it. And finance and marketing stuff was kind of cool, but I just didn't, I, I was a, business major because I thought that's what you were supposed to be when you went to college was you major in business. LIFO and FIFO doesn't really set your world it, on fire. Yeah, it didn't really do it for me. And okay. so I I was Agreed. taking a lot of history elective classes because I had always enjoyed history. And it was so funny, not to get too deep in the weeds on it, but I was taking a, a management class, which I actually enjoyed. And my professor asked the whole class a question. She said, if one of your employees came to you and said, Hey, I want to go get my master's, but I don't want to get an MBA. I want to get my master's in, for example, history. Would you allow your employee to do that and use company funds, right, to help pay for the further education if it wasn't going to be for business? And all of us in the management class were like, well, no. Like you would never, you would never support schooling that wasn't business oriented. And then she immediately corrected us and and showed us all of our faulty thinking and all the great things in this case that she used history of all the wonderful things you can learn about business and whatever line of work you're in by studying history and as soon as she said this I'm like I walked out of that class I'm like well I'm switching majors I'm gonna be a history <laughs> major <laughs> and so and her point was you're learning how to think critically, how to read critically. So much writing is involved when you're a history major, right? Instead of taking tests, most of what you're doing is you're writing papers and you're coming up with an argument and you're proving a point and you're showing, you might think this way and this has some validity, but really the stronger point to be made about this particular case is this. And you're looking at both sides of things. Obviously, there's a storytelling element, which I didn't even know then blended so well with my career now is primarily a baseball broadcaster. So I switched my majors like immediately and became a history major and loved it. Loved every second of it. It was a lot of work, a lot of reading, a lot of writing. I had no idea at that time I wanted to be a broadcaster, uh, but I, I knew I didn't want to work in a museum and I knew I didn't want to teach history, but I knew that the skills that I was learning would be applicable to almost any field that I was going to go into, even though all my classmates thought that I was nuts. Uh, I woke up one morning, honest to goodness, with about 45 days till I graduated. And I said, I think I want to get into broadcasting. Uh, I think somebody might one day pay me to talk about sports on the radio. It was one of the few times in my life where I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. I'd, I've always had something from my earliest memories as a kid. I remember I wanted to be a garbage man. Then I wanted to work at the car wash. I mean, like, honestly, like I always had something and it was really scary for me. I was roughly two months from graduating college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
You wanted um, to be a garbage man? Like badly. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a noble pursuit. Thank you. Can't say that was my first, uh, you know, inclination to get a job. But well, as a fi- you were far more advanced as a five-year-old than I was, Paul. Oh, I, mean, I, think, I think we all know that. I, well, I was more of the, hey, let's go into construction because I was big into the, into the big rigs, you know, the steam yeah. shovels. But, <laughs> hey. How'd that work out for you, Paul? Nah, not great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I really, I, I suddenly kind of, I can't say I changed course because I didn't really have a course at the time. But yeah. I did a lot of research as to how I could now parlay a history major into a broadcasting career. And at that point, I discovered a, a trade school in St. Louis, my hometown. And instead of learning how to be a welder or an electrician, they taught you how to be a broadcaster on radio. And I'm sorry, my daughter's in a Moana dress and trying to break into my office. In a little I've bit. never seen that. Did Moana a good movie? Oh, no, Moana. I would say Moana is undoubtedly, I think, my favorite kids movie. I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a six-month-old. Uh, Moana so that checks all the boxes. It gets them all. Moana soundtrack, fantastic. We've listened to it 10,000 times. Um, but, it, you know, the other thing, too, is when I watch Moana, it makes me think of being in Hawaii, which mm. is helpful. Cars is great. I enjoy cars. Frozen is huge in my house. Frozen 1 and 2. Never done that I, either. I just, I just, I don't understand it. I've seen it 30 times. It just makes no sense to me. But my daughter is obsessed. It's her thing. Frozen is her thing. But Moana, Paul, you got a lot of time on your hands. When you're not watching yeah. Cornhole on Twitter at one in the morning, I would suggest <laughs> you know, checking out Moana. It's very, very good. Very well done. Um, so, yeah, I went to this broadcasting school. I had a retail job that I worked uh, during the mornings and afternoons. And I went to broadcasting school. And it, honestly, it had nothing to do with play-by-play. And at the time, I actually didn't know I wanted to get into play-by-play. I thought I wanted to be a talk show guy believe it or not, and didn't even cover sports talk radio. All it was was it was a school that taught you how to speak properly or at least speak a lot better than how I was speaking at the time. It taught you all the production side of things, which I was like, well, I'm, I'm never going to use this. Right? Like, I don't need to know how to cut a commercial. It taught you how to be a board op, which again, I was like, I don't, I don't need to know how to be a board op. I'm going to be the guy with the microphone. Uh, little did I know all those things would be the most important things that I learned yeah. while I was there, right? My whole minor league career. I mean, as you know, I cut like half the commercials. I board opt all the time. I board up my own games. Sometimes even, even as a lead guy in double a, we were board opting our games from the booth. If you can believe it, because we couldn't get a radio station in town to, in uh, Dallas to, to cover our games. It was such a big market. Wow. So in any event, I learned a lot of things that I didn't think I would need at the broadcast center, which is what the school was called. It was a terrific experience for me. And my advisor just kept pestering me to apply for this little independent league baseball team on the other side of the Mississippi River, right across the river from Bush Stadium in this town called Soje, Illinois, the Gateway Grizzlies. And I kept putting them off and putting them off. And finally, I broke down and I said, okay, fine. I'll, like, I'll apply. What do I need to do? And he said, this is amazing. All they wanted, and this was in uh, 2007, going into the 2007 baseball season. All the Grizzlies wanted was five minutes of uninterrupted play-by-play. That's it. Like, no highlights. 
Like, just give me five minutes of uninterrupted play-by-play. And it was, it was the winter. It was basketball season. I, keep in mind, I've never called play-by-play ever in my life. I've never even thought of it as a career. So you went so, into Gateway not having done anything. Not in zero. college, nothing. Nothing. Okay. Like no play-by-play and no radio. Like I hadn't done a talk show or a podcast. Like podcasts weren't even a thing then. This was the Stone Age. I mean, I, like nothing. So <clears throat> I got a tape deck and a microphone. Never like, heard of it. Yes. I got a cassette <laughs> tape and a big honking tape deck. And I went up to the where I graduated college. was only an hour away from where I lived in St. Louis. And on consecutive weekends, they had men's and women's Division three basketball doubleheaders. So I went up into the film nest because, like, I knew the guy who was filming because I knew him from college. And I just sat up there with this tape deck and microphone for four games over two weekends. And my goal was to get five minutes of uninterrupted basketball play-by-play, which is really hard if you've never – I mean, basketball is obviously so quick-moving. I was completely lost. Like, the first game was just – I just melt the tape, light it on fire. Like, there's no – there's nothing here. You still have I'm pretty, it? I, I'm pretty sure I do still have it. Like, the, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I still have the five minutes that I sent. But here was the great thing. Like, there was no way I was going to prep for these games. Like, no way. <laughs> like, I don't know what that means. And I'm not going to do it, right? So my, the, the, my school, Principia College, like I knew a lot of the players still because a lot of them were there when I was in school, right? Yeah. So I knew their names in and out. But the opposing team, like it's, it's, it's kind of takes time to memorize names and numbers of a team that you know nothing about, especially if you're rolling on site I don't know, 10 minutes before tip off and grabbing a roster, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like you have no chance. And so I would just make up names for the other team. Like my wife now, Heather, her last, her maiden name is Harmon. I was dating Heather at the time. So like the best player on the other team was always Harmon. <laughs> and like the second best player was like the buddy who I just talked to before I came up into the film mess, right? Yeah. So I'm just making up names for the other team, trying to get – and even with made-up names, it, was, it took me four games to get five minutes that weren't terrible. Like, weren't terrible. Like, they were not good, but they weren't terrible. So I got five minutes, and I sent this – I mailed this cassette to GCS Ballpark, what it was at least at the time. And I'm convinced to this day, convinced that nobody else applied for that job because I got it. And – when they told me that they were going to pay me $70 a month to be the number two broadcaster, which entailed calling two innings of play-by-play and doing an on-field post-game interview. That was it. There were no other responsibilities. When the team was on the road, I wasn't even a part of it. When the team was home, I wasn't a part of anything else. I just had to show up in enough time to prep for the game. When they told me they were going to pay me 70 bucks. I thought I was a millionaire. It's like, you're going to pay me? To- I've never done this. You're going to pay me money to come and do this on your watch? You got it, man. It's like, give me the contract. I'm signing right now. Oh, there is no contract? No problem. I'll just no. show up. That's cool. I'll just um, show up. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, the opening day against the Southern Illinois Miners was the first baseball game that I'd ever called, the first time I'd ever been on the radio. And I didn't even do play-by-play that night. I was just the color guy because my boss, Joe Pot, who's now the voice of um, 
Southern Illinois, uh, Edwardsville sports. He's, he's a terrific broadcaster. Like he knew that I would be terrible. Like I'd be terrible in a week, but I'd be especially terrible that night. So it was a, a very instructional summer for me. Let's put it that way. But that's how I got my start. And I never, ever, ever, and neither would he have guessed after one week or one month or one season there in Gateway that I'd be in Seattle calling big league baseball, doing stuff for Fox. Like that seemed, that, that seemed like me flying a spaceship to Mars. (laughs) How'd you like the frontier league? I mean, it was great. I didn't travel at all. I only did home games, the ballpark. The funny thing about indie ball yeah, which gets kind of a bad rap is a lot of those ballparks are so much better, so much better than low level minors like low A, high A, even probably some double A. Like the ballparks are pretty new. A lot of them have a lot of bells and whistles. Ours set of like hot tubs in right field, for example, like it was like cool stuff. The food in that ballpark was amazing. It was one of the only teams I've ever worked for that paid for all of our food. Like they gave you a concession stand card and it was just endless. So you just got all the food you wanted. It was like, it was incredible. I didn't even know how good I had it until I went to the Cape league the next year and on opening day in the Cape league, like, well, so where's the food? And somebody, one of the other interns said, Oh, we go down to the concession stand and they got like hot dogs and stuff down there. So I go down to the concession stand and one of them and, <laughs> and I was like, Hey, uh, Show them my badge, like, hey, I'm the I'm the new broadcaster. I'm just trying to get hot dogs, and they're like, okay, well, that's going to be whatever, like four dollars. I was like, oh, I thought you I thought you gave them to us. They're like, oh, you, employees get a twenty five percent discount. I'm like, you're oh. giving me twenty five percent off a hot dog? <laughs> I didn't I didn't even know it. Now the Cape League, to be fair, is a nonprofit league, uh, but nevertheless, I didn't know how good I had in, in Gateway. But that's how I got my start, and it was. Uh, a crazy path um, from Gateway to Seattle, but but we got here. So you go from Gateway, then you make your way through Frisco and Portland and Pawtucket, eventually winding your way through. But Frisco was your first number one full-time, I'm the guy. Hey, play by play. Oh, here we go. Can we get this over with? Moana? There's Moana. She can't hear you. I have an earpiece in, but have, oh. can you say hi? Hi. Yeah. Hi. How are you? Oh, can you say, can you say, hey, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hello. He says, I hi. like, I like, tell her I like the dress. He likes your dress. Are you, is that your frozen? Uh, that's so that's your Moana dress, and you have your frozen wand. Frozen doesn't actually have a wand, but no, um, it's a, a frozen wand. That is a frozen wand, and you have your frozen sunglasses. Mm-hmm. He's your present oh, right there. Can you put them on? You want, can you want to put your sunglasses on? Um, no. Are they in there? Yes, they are. Yep. You don't want to try them on for us? Nope. They look great. Aww. They actually look great. Fashion show? Yeah, no fashion show. Hallie doesn't like to perform all the time, yeah. Oh, but she doesn't like to intrude. That. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you want? Can you sing the Moana song? Uh, nope, no? I can't. I'm not know how. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You want to blow Paul a kiss and say, "See you later, Paul." <laughs> nice. Nice to there meet you. you. <laughs> all right. He, he says, "Nice to meet you." Nice. All right. Why don't you go find your brother? No, See you, little girl. Uh, yeah, uh, Frisco was like, for sure. That was, that was like me reaching the big leagues. Cause I'd done three years in the, in the low, low minors to intern. I mean, I was an intern for three years at, and the first two years were the two lowest levels, Indy ball and the Cape league. I mean, Cape league is lower than Indy ball, right? I mean, it's college kids. 
I was, I had been out of college for like two years and all the other interns were like freshmen and sophomores in college. I mean, I was like a dad. Um, <laughs> I was in the Cape league and, and, you know, in, in gateway, I made 70 bucks a month and I would, I was feel like I was robbing a bank and paid my gas money. And in the Cape league, I got nothing. Nobody got anything. It's completely nonprofit. So I drove all the way to born Massachusetts to call games for the born Braves. And I, made no money. I mean, I made money by getting jobs off of Craigslist. I got a landscaping job. So I think one of the funny things about when I look back on my career in the minors was I did two years and I like had this false sense of entitlement. I'm, you know, I was thinking like, Hey, I'm like, I've done, I've done two years now, which in reality, like if you put together the number of innings that I'd called, like I'd done two seasons, but I called like not even enough innings to make, I don't know like i don't know not even 100 games like full yeah. games right yeah i'm doing two games of two innings of home games only in whatever the grizzlies schedule is like 96 games and then i'm doing six innings of like whatever the cape league schedule is called 50 games you know so i done two seasons but i hadn't done two seasons if you know what i mean yeah and so i'm thinking like well i'm gonna get like I'm going to deserve and get a, a full-time minor league job, like not a good one, but like a low A job someplace. And that year um, going into 2009, when I ended up interning for the Portland Sea Dogs in the Eastern league, I'll never forget this. There was one full-time minor league job open all year. And it was for double A Tulsa in the Texas league. And the job went to somebody who had, been in the big leagues Dennis Higgins he was a former big league broadcaster for KNBR and the Giants and I'm thinking like well if a former big leaguer gets the job in Tulsa like how long till I get a job in Tulsa <laughs> you know like, yeah. this is never gonna happen I'm gonna be like 40 and I was in my mid-20s at the time and so I got an internship in in Maine with the Portland Sea Dogs and it was the best summer of my life to this day. And I learned so much. I did a bunch of innings relative to what I'd done before. This is just not yeah. going to go away. And um, now you need, to be, you need to be quiet if you're going to hang out, okay? Okay, that's very tough. And um, yeah, and so I, I, I made like 600 bucks a month maybe in Portland. Okay. And the only reason I made it work financially was because my mom – Worked had a former employee or from former coworker who had moved to Portland, was an empty nester, and thank goodness Peggy had an extra room and she let me rent it from her for a hundred bucks a month, man. And she gave me a shelf on the refrigerator, and I had my own bathroom. And if it wasn't for Peg, man, like I, I can't afford it unless yeah. I move out there blindly and I hope I get some side hustle, which you're gonna have like no time for, you know. So. Um, it was, and then, you know, the funny thing is after that, like, I think when you're a minor league broadcaster, at some point you will feel desperation. Yeah. Like that feeling will overcome you. And it's better to feel desperation when you're like 26 than when you're 46. But the hard part about when you feel desperation as a 26 year old is you don't have like a lot of maturity relative to a 46 year old to know how to handle it. Like, it's really hard. It's really hard when you have put in money. Like, 
I only spent a year at the broadcast center, but I still spent money to go there. And it was still a year of my life, which at the time seemed like a lot. And I put in, at this point, three years as a minor league broadcaster, all as an intern. And like, I've got this pipe dream of being a big league broadcaster. But before that, like, I just want to have full-time employment. Yeah. You know, like I'm, Same. I'm tired. Like, yeah. Like I'm just <laughs> tired of moving every season, right? Like I'm tired of packing my car and unpacking my car and then doing it all over again. And then like this limbo of finding temporary housing during the winter and finding odd jobs that pay me enough money to survive, but that aren't as big of a commitment that I can't walk away from in April when the baseball season starts. I mean, like a couple of years as a 24 year old, 25 year old, like, yeah, for sure. Like you are doing it like three years, four years, and there's no end in sight. And you've got, in my case, uh, a girlfriend who, like, we're serious that we've been dating for four years and we're trying to want to get married. Like, you start to really feel a lot of pressure and you start to really doubt that you made the right career path choice. And that's definitely how I felt. Uh, My parents and I had a come to Jesus moment. They were very supportive this whole time, but they were also like, hey, is this going to happen, man? Like, are you, are you going to, like, not the big leagues, are you going to get a full-time job? And as I'm sure you've experienced, Paul, one of the really hard things when you're kind of a newbie in this profession is getting honest feedback. And if you don't get honest feedback, you don't know if you're any good. And if you don't know if you're any good, you don't know if you're wasting your life. And I didn't know if I was wasting my life, honestly. I've only been three years, uh, four years if you include going to broadcasting school. Like four years feel like a lot, <laughs> you know, like that's, <laughs> yeah. how long I was in, like that's how long I was in college for. Right. Yeah. Um, like I have friends who are in a career and making like say 60 grand, 70 grand in 2009. And I'm like, I haven't made that much money since I've graduated college combined. Like I'm in the whole 60 grand. I wasn't, but it felt like it. Right. And So I said to Heather, after I got back home to St. Louis after 2009, after my third minor league internship, I was like, listen, this is it. If I don't get a full-time job for the next baseball season, which would have been 2010, if I don't get a full-time job, like I'm, I'm hanging it up, right? Like I would have given it a good run, three years of seasons, uh, four years in total. And the market will just tell me that I'm not supposed to do this anymore. And one of my, my retail job when I was uh, working at the broadcast center, when I was going to the broadcast center, was I worked at a, a culinary supply store, essentially, uh, called the Viking Store. And Viking's a manufacturer of like pretty high-end um, uh, kitchen appliances. They make ranges and hoods and ovens and yeah. all this other stuff. And they also sell all the other normal kitchen stuff. And I really liked it. And there was, I was selling appliances among other things for them. And like the regional Viking appliance sale was making a ton of money, man. It was making like a hundred thousand plus dollars selling all those things. Right. And I'm like, I, I really enjoyed it. And he's making way more money than I can even imagine. And I said to Heather, honest to goodness, Paul, I'm like, if I don't get a full-time job, I'm going to be an appliance salesman like, and I'll make enough money for us to get married and like start our lives and I'll grow within that field. And like, I'll think I'll enjoy it. Like, it's not what I have my heart set on, but let's do it. Right. Like my, my personal life is more important than this sacrificing 
of uh, our time together, meaning not you and me, Heather. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and she was like, "All right, if you feel if like, you're at peace with that, then that's the plan." So I I blitzed the market. Right. I applied for every job. A job in Dallas, Texas opened up with the Frisco Rough Riders. They wanted to uh, interview me. At the time, my profession was I was an assistant JV basketball coach. And I was a professional dog walker, which is a job that I got on oh. Craigslist. Which was, I, I, I love dogs, and it was a great job, believe it or not. What, like, what's the most amount of dogs you walked at one time? So I would walk only one. I wasn't like one of those oh, you mass, you, like Oh, you never no, had like the two no. leashes with like eight stretched out like a spider web? No. Like there's one of oh. those in my neighborhood, and every time I pass her, I, I'm blown away. And all I, I do need is to I see, see the, I see the dollar signs. Yeah, and I need to see you wearing the belt, and you got them all like flipped <laughs> on, like carabined on, and you know. And I'm on rollerblades, oh. like just going. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, so like I would walk. Each dog visit was 30 minutes, and they were all kind of in this one in, like big neighborhood of St. Louis. And I think I made like, I think I made like eight dollars a visit, which you couldn't do two in an hour because each visit was thirty minutes. You had to get to the next house, but you could do almost two in an hour. You do like two in like an hour and ten. You're making like sixteen bucks every hour and ten minutes. Like time, that was a ton of money, right? Like it's way yeah. more than I make doing retail. So that's where I was in life, man. I'm walking dogs, and I'm not even the head JV coach. I'm the assistant JV coach, and. So the rough riders want to talk to me. And this was another dose of reality. I was like blown away that they wanted to interview me. I was thrilled. Like the ballpark there in Frisco, Dr. Pepper ballpark looked like a big league ballpark to me. It was huge. It was gorgeous. This is a real city, right? This isn't some podunk town like every other minor league town. Like this felt like. Dr. Pepper with no period, right? Exactly right, Paul. Nice Sometimes I retain something. <laughs> There's no, no period after the R. I learned that the hard way. And so I'm, I'm like fired up about this. And they talk to me on the phone and they say, hey, we like you enough. We want to talk to you in person. Can you come out here next week? And I said, absolutely, I can. How are you going to book the flight for me? Uh-oh. And they're like, what? Uh, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> actually, Aaron, if, um, if you'd like to meet with us, you will pay for the flight. What? Are you kidding me, man? I'm walking dogs. <laughs> and you've got a big old ballpark sponsored by Dr. Pepper. You can't spring a hundred bucks to fly me out there. And so I quickly realized my mistake in asking. I was like, oh yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. Not a problem. I'll get back in touch with you. So like, I, I remember calculating how many more dogs I'd have to walk in a week to make the money to buy the ticket to fly there, man. Like this is what, like when people talk about, being a big league broadcaster, like these are the things that most of us went through. I can just imagine the little old lady in the neighborhood that doesn't have anything better to do but look out her window all day, and she's just watching you go back. Didn't he just walk that dog like two hours ago? <laughs> I'm like laundering money through dog walking so I can <laughs> buy, the, buy this plane ticket. So, yeah, I mean, I walked more dogs. I bought this ticket. Uh, I flew down and back in the same day so I wouldn't miss w more work than one day. Uh, like, I got – incredibly i got the job and i was there for two years and we loved it we thought like we've made it man like we got married we i, I proposed after i got the job i proposed like two weeks later we were our engagement was for like six months we got married 
moved to Dallas and we were there for two years and we had a great time and we felt like, Hey, all that stress of like, is this, is our life plan not going to work how we thought it would, uh, was gone. And now it was just like, okay, how, how do we climb this ladder? Like, how do we be grateful for where we are? And we're very grateful for where we are, but, but also knowing like we can't be a double A broadcaster for the rest of my life. What do you think was the biggest thing that contributed to you knowing that you were getting that Frisco job? I, maybe, maybe not necessarily knowing, but what do you think was the biggest thing looking back on it that led you to get that job? Was it the experience or how good your tape was or so a that's combination? A good that's because my tape was not good. Like okay. I was a mediocre broadcaster with a pretty deep voice. But at least you weren't making up names, right? I was maybe not you, making up I'm names. Not, I'm not putting I mean, up names. Hey, hey, nobody knows, Paul. Leave that buried, okay? Nobody knows. <laughs> Honestly, here's why I got that job, I think. Then this is fairly job specific, but hopefully somebody can use this in their job search going forward. At the time, the Rough Riders were in this precarious situation where they're a minor league team in a big league market. Okay. They were getting no media exposure because of that, right? I mean, goodness, across the street from their parking lot was an arena where like the Mavericks, I guess now G League team was playing. Oh, and then you have the Mavericks, right? Then you have the Cowboys and the Rangers and the Stars. And there's an F, an MLS team that was playing just up the highway. So nobody was talking about the Rough Riders. And they wanted to create this position that their broadcaster would fulfill called a director of media development. In other words, get us some stinking attention, right? And so they made it very clear in the job post and in my initial conversation with them that this was the priority. Like they want a broadcaster and they want somebody who can call games, but we want somebody who can come in here with some ideas about how to drum us up some attention, which I had zero experience with. Like I had never done PR work. I had never printed up game notes or written game notes, printed up a stat pack, zero, none of that. But I knew I could be creative and come up with some, at the time, new age thinking of how to get them attention. And so I basically pitched to them, hey, the idea of having the local sports anchor from the NBC affiliate come out on our doorstep and do a live stand-up for the six o'clock news, like that's great. And we don't want to abandon that. But how many people are really watching that, right? Like those numbers are declining. What are some more internet driven things that we can do that we can control the content and to control how it was delivered? So we did some things that now looking back on it are commonplace, but at the time were a little more in the cutting edge of things. Like for example, we created a podcast. We did a Rough Riders podcast, which I don't know if there were like any teams at the time doing minor league teams doing podcasts. Uh, we did a daily blog, which there was a minor league blog network, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't very prevalent, right? We did it. We did entries every day of the season by we, I had great interns, uh, Brian Bush, who's the, was the best one is now, uh, the voice of Michigan basketball and did a lot of work in Winston-Salem for IMG and for the dash before that is their play-by-play guy. Brian was, was my MVP. I couldn't have done it without Brian. He was there my second and final year. Um, we also did this crazy thing, uh, where we had like these live in-game chats every game. It was embedded in our website and it was called the extra basis chat. And so when the game started, you could go to roughriders.com, click on the chat. And it was this community of Rough Riders fans 
like nine of them, and they could chat. Esteem, an esteemed nine. Yes, they were like very hardcore nine. And oh they yeah. Could, they could chat about what was going on in the game. We could post links, like if MLB Pipeline just profiled one of our players, we put the link up in there. We would turn around things really quickly, like if one of our prospects hit a home run, we would cut our audio of the home run and embed it. Like, hey, if you just missed it, last inning, Paul hit a three-run home run. Here's how it sounded. We had a great staff photographer, like really good, especially by minor league standards. And he wasn't there every night, but he was there a lot. And he would take photos down to the well, edit them, and email them up to us in the booth. So if there was a play at the plate and like a collision and he got a great picture of it, within minutes, we got a picture of it there on this platform. And Twitter was going at that time. It was up and running, but Twitter wasn't like all that stuff now is Twitter, right? Yeah. Uh, but Twitter didn't have nearly the buy-in of the baseball public like it has now. So what I did was I came up with those ideas and I had no leverage. So I just spilled the beans on all the ideas when I interviewed, right? Like part of me felt a little nervous that they're like, well, we don't really like Aaron, but we like his ideas. Let's not hire Aaron. Let's hire Paul and give Paul Aaron's ideas. <laughs> right? <laughs> like I was really concerned that that was going to happen, but I also felt like maybe the other people they were talking to either wouldn't share their ideas or just simply didn't have them. And yeah. so I proactively went into that interview saying, hey, I understand what you guys are prioritizing here. And let me tell you how I interpret it and some concrete ideas that we can implement immediately that will cost you zero dollars that will hopefully start to turn this tide a little bit, right? Like we're not going to all of a sudden get the whole Metroplex to be wearing Rough Riders hats, but we need to kind of start it's with a great ground hat. It's a great hat. It's we do need to start with some, some ground roots type of fan-based marketing interaction to get people a little more invested in the team. And I believe that's what got it to me, got me the job. It was not my demo. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that the minor league, or minor league broadcasters make when they're starting, and I made this mistake, is thinking that your demo is going to get you the job. Sometimes it will. Like there are some situations, uh, like Pawtucket is an example. I mean, the Paw Sox are – they really care about the broadcast, right? I mean, that's what makes that place so special. They, they want the best broadcaster. But most teams, they want a good broadcaster, but they want a great salesman. They want a good broadcaster, but a really great marketer or PR person. And there were a lot of days in Frisco where I didn't start prepping for a game until like 6 o'clock when I got up to the booth because I was too busy doing all the other stuff, right? filling out media parking requests and media requests. Not that we had a lot. Uh, doing the game notes, stat packs. I learned quickly to – way more of that to my interns. Uh, there was just things, website maintenance, uh, releases, all those things. They take a lot of time, and that's time that I'm not prepping. And so a team is not – a minor league radio broadcast, not to get down a rabbit hole here, but yeah. it is important for minor league broadcasters to consider this when they're applying for jobs. Think how much a radio broadcast costs a team. Okay. For those teams that are still on actual radio, in the minors, a radio station doesn't pay a team to broadcast the games, right? Like a big league team goes out and finds the highest bidder who wants to carry their games and they make money on that. Okay. In the minors, nobody's 
knocking down a door to cover, carry the Rough Riders games. That was a huge problem we had, especially in a big market. So you have to go and you have to spend money with a radio station. So immediately you're in the hole, let's just say 20 grand, okay? You're in the hole 20 grand because you just paid to have your games on radio. Now you're gonna hire Paul and Paul's gonna cost you 30 grand. Now you're in the hole 50 grand, okay? Now yeah. Paul's gotta eat on the road even though all he eats is $5 big boxes, you still got to feed the guy, right? Yeah. So let's say- again, low, low maintenance. Again, you just try right. to <laughs> apply yourself. Like, let's say, oh, and Paul needs a hotel room, right? Yeah, I'd prefer so just, one. Yeah, so let's just say per diem and hotel for just round numbers sake, let's say it's another 10 grand. So now we're at what? Were we at 60 grand? Were we at 50 yeah. before? We're at 60 grand, all right? That it's costing the team to have Paul call their games. Now, a minor league team isn't making enough money to just kiss 60 grand goodbye and feel good about it, right? So that's why in most cases you see these minor league teams who want a sales guy, who want their minor league broadcaster to also do sales. Because, Paul, you got to sell at least 60 grand worth of advertising just to make your existence worthwhile for the team. I mean, yeah. that's, just, that's just the economics of it. So that's part of the reason why you know, minor league jobs don't pay a lot. And why you have to provide immense value outside of your nine innings on the air because you have to justify all the costs to go along with having you around. I think the sooner you know that as a minor league broadcaster, maybe the easier the pill is to swallow of, you know, hey, I'm an intern and I'm making 500 bucks a month or whatever it is. So you were an intern in the Frontier League, which I was a number two in the Frontier League with Florence Freedom. And then you're an intern or a number two with the Portland Sea Dogs in the Eastern League, which is where I would have been this summer with the Bowie Bay Sox. So all that is to say following that path. And, and I was an intern in the Cape League. I was th three years an intern. Yeah. Yeah. But you had me beat on the Cape League. I, I, had, I have you, too, with the, the Frontier League and the Eastern League. So I guess my question is, how fast can you guarantee that I'll be in the big leagues? <laughs> uh, you know, I would say, given, given uh, the setup that you have going right now, which is pretty impressive, the Xavier sign, the Radio Shack microphone. I mean, your AirPods yeah. cost more than everything else in your room combined, Paul. Well, I use like six gift cards for those. <laughs> save and save you know, and save it is it is amazing man because you could talk to every big league broadcaster or every network broadcaster and no path is the same yeah right? so like, what was go ahead i was gonna say like you can advise someone on your best steps on getting a big league job but it won't it won't work out that way like it's gonna be different right like one of the biggest life lessons i learned in the minors was that things literally never happened like I planned them. Like we've all played the game, right? Like you're on STAA, right? For those who maybe are new to this, Sportscasters Talent Agency of America, it's a website. It's like the job board. I was on STAA.com was my homepage, my whole minor league career. I, I scoured every job post dating back like two years. Like it was total market research. I memorized the whole thing. It felt like I was on that thing 20 times a day clicking if a new job was open. Like you're on SCAA and you're like, oh man, Paul just got promoted to whatever. Uh, he's, he's now the lead guy in Portland. Oh man. Okay. So that now means that that, that job in Bowie is open. 
and I bet you they're going to hire this guy from Bowie. And so if that guy goes from there to Bowie, then that means that guy's job open. So now I bet you I can apply there and that's going to open up. And oh my, like you're, you're mapping out this whole thing, right? Yeah. It's never worked, man. It never works. Like it never, <laughs> it never once worked out that way. So just apply for every job, literally every job and be a good person. And I mean, and cross your fingers because yeah. for me, my first three years were quicksand. I mean, was like I was I was losing footing what felt like every year Portland was a little wind in my sails because it was affiliated ball I made some money um but I still went into that off season with this desperation of it's it's now or never like I'm either going to get a full-time job or I'm out of this business but the amazing thing to me is how quickly my career changed three years of being an intern to two years of a lead guy in Frisco one year as a lead guy in Pawtucket, a job I never thought I would get. And then the Mariners job, a job I really never thought I was going to get. So a lot can happen, man. A lot can happen in three years. Like I'm testimony to that. You go from Frisco to Pawtucket. And for those of you listening that are in the minor league broadcasting business, pretty much everybody knows it's a common a common knowledge sort of thing that Pawtucket is the cream of the crop as far as broadcasters go which you get that, and then you're only there a year, right, before you go to Correct. Seattle. Yeah. What's, the, what's the process, in, in as much detail as you're willing to go into, of when you're in Pawtucket and you have that job, which is a fantastic job to get in and of itself, mm-hmm. to then making that jump to the major leagues? Everybody wants to know, how do you get from the minor leagues to the major leagues? And you just said everybody's path could be different, but – is it the major league team reaching out because they have an opening? Is, is it you having an agent and them knowing where the openings are and all of a sudden it transpires that way? Or what do you feel like now having been in the league for a few years is the most common thread that connects everybody to, all right, this is generally how I got into the major leagues and made that jump. So a couple of, of good kind of avenues to go down there. First, in terms of like the head hunting approach, like a team contacting you. That can happen. Like there are examples of that happening, but I venture to guess that all of those examples are for established big league broadcasters, right? Like you've been the number two of team A for seven years, okay? And then a team lead job opens up and they are like, hey, we know this guy because he comes to our ballpark four times a year and we want to, we're going to reach out to Paul, right? He's on our short list immediately. It's, you're not going to get headhunted if you're in Pawtucket like is, or if you're in Bowie or wherever it is, right? Like you're, you're generally completely unknown. Like, well, you didn't I, have to crush me that quick. <laughs> <laughs> like when, when, when I was in Pawtucket, even though you're right, Pawtucket's the cradle, man. Like it's, it has the best success rate, the best hit rate of big league broadcasters. That being said, you go talk at the time after my first and one season in Pawtucket, you go ask any major league executive in charge of hiring a radio broadcast. Like nobody knows who I am. They've never heard of me. I'm an utter nobody. I'm a little ant in Pawtucket, right? So they're not going to come find you. And even if they will, don't ever assume that, right? <laughs> like, be proactive. Step two is exactly that. I think I'm amazed, man. I'm amazed by how many minor league guys I talk to who are always asking the same question, like, how do I move up, right? Like, maybe not even how do I get a big league job? How do I go from AA to AAA? Yeah. And they don't record their innings. 
like like blows me away man you've got to record your innings you have to record everything every interview every inning everything record it and then when you record it don't just let it all stack up on your hard drive like you got to listen to it you got to go through it like during the season you need to be staying on top of this because the worst thing that can happen is that a job opens up and now you're scrambling to make a demo and now your demo is not going to be as good as it should be because you're trying to put it together in like 48 hours and you have 500 games worth of sound that you're trying to go through. Right. So I think a lot of us kind of have the same practice, which is if you have a really good inning in your scorebook, like I would just circle the top of the inning, like where it says five, the fifth inning, I would just circle five. And that would remind me at the end of that road trip, for example, if I'm on an eight hour bus ride, I'm going to go through audio. Oh yeah. Tuesday game, the fifth inning on Tuesday, that was a good inning. Or if it was, I had a great double play call, you put a little star by it or whatever mark you want to do, but you got to keep up with this stuff. And then you have to apply. It just blows me away how many times people don't apply for whatever reason. Now, there, you know, there are life situations that maybe you're just, you're happy where you are and you don't feel the need to apply for a job or rung up. And hey, if that's the case, more power to you. But if you're trying to move, you're trying to move up, like you got to apply for every job. I don't get Seattle if I don't apply. I don't get Pawtucket if I don't apply. Now, both of those situations were the next rung up, right? Pawtucket was one step up from where I was in AA. Seattle was one step up from where I was in AAA. And I remember thinking after my year in Pawtucket when the Mariners job opened, I was like, well, I was saying to Heather, I mean, there's no way I get this job. Like 0% chance. I've been a lead guy in AAA for one year. I've been a lead guy period for three years. That's it. Three years. Like they don't hire guys in the big leagues with that little amount of experience, but I mean, I got to apply. I mean, I, you just, you have to give yourself a sporting chance, right? So does it come out that you see a chance to apply or do you hear about it or how did that come about? I mean, I heard about the Mariners on SCAA. Okay. Yeah. And I just, Put, I made a CD and cover letter and resume and all that stuff and put it in the mail. Like to me, that's one of the most amazing things about the Mariners situation is that it validated that if you put something in the mail, that they're going to listen to it, right? That's all. That's our biggest fear. Like we put our CD in the mail and you're, well, they're never going to hear that. Like this is going to pile up on somebody's desk. <laughs> And so like, you know, the, the idea of agents gets asked about more and more. And my, the only thing, the only reason I can think of that is because more and more guys are now doing TV, right? Like even low level TV, like ESPN threes or some other version of an internet only stream. Yeah. Uh, and that stuff wasn't around like, or maybe at all, or just a very little bit when I was in the minors, <clears throat> it's kind of becoming more popular when I was at, at the tail end of my minor league career. I never even knew anything about an agent at all or even considered it because I was like, well, I'm terrible and I'm making no money. First of all, I can't afford to pay anybody any money and nobody wants 10% of whatever I'm making, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I actually got approached by an agent, an agent who I eventually signed with and I'm still with to this day after my season in Pawtucket. And the timing worked out perfectly. I had applied for the Mariners job. We started talking. I knew some of their clients. They were very forthright with me. I saw all their, I knew 
I didn't know, but I saw their entire clientele list, which was very important to me. I didn't want to go to an agency that had 200 clients. And of those 200, 15 of them were Aaron Goldsmiths, right? Yeah. They only, they only had a couple of guys who were like me in terms of where I was in my career and where I wanted to go, but more importantly, where I was right now. And then they said to me, Aaron, pick out a couple of guys that you want to talk to. We'll give you their phone numbers and you can, you can call Paul, who's been a client of ours for five years, and you can ask Paul all the questions you want about what it's like to be with us. Like I would, when, for anybody who ends up going to an agent, I would never sign with an agent unless they allow you to do that. Right. Like it's a big okay. red flag to not be able to talk to clients. Um, cause you're, that's a big decision. Um, and for those wondering, I mean, if I was watching this, I'd say, well, who's your agent? Um, my agent used to be a, a group called vision sports group, uh, headed by Maury Gosfrand. Uh, Maury has since merged with two other agencies and now they're called the Montag group and they're all out of New York. Every agency is in New York. It seems like there's probably a couple in LA, but they're all in New York. So I'm technically now, I'm not technically, I am with Montag Group, but when I signed, it was with Maury's company called Vision. I'm still so with Maury. You decided against Scott Boris and you went with him. Yes. I, 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 I didn't, he won't let me call A-Rod, you know, and I'm like, ah. well, I can't call A-Rod, right? Okay. Yeah, I'm out. <clears throat> uh, but having an agent definitely helped. Uh, having an agent helped when it came to the money side of that, my first big league contract, right? Because if they to me, Hey, Aaron, we want to have you. And we're going to pay you 50 grand. I would have been like, oh, that seems kind of low. <laughs> uh, will you give me 60? No. Okay. I guess it's 50, right? Like, <laughs> uh, having the, the agent, All right? Yeah. The, the, not that the Mariners would have done this, but the Mariners knew that they had to give me a fair offer because my agent knew what a fair offer was. Right. But I can tell you this much, having an agent will not get you a big league job. Because guess what? And having an agent doesn't make you good, right? Like it just yeah. gives you, it gives you potentially a false sense of ego. Like, oh, I've got an agent. But like, I didn't get that job because I had an agent. Uh, I, I got a better deal at the end because I had an agent. But I got that job because, I mean, thank goodness they liked my demo. And they surprisingly liked me when I spoke to them. So don't be under this false pretense, anybody, that you have to have an agent to get to the big leagues. Uh, an agent will help you, will help you get TV jobs. Like I don't get a Fox sports job without an agent because they're not, Fox isn't calling me up to be like, Hey, will you come call again? They're, they're not saying, Hey, we listened to the Mariners third inning last night. I thought you were really great. Have you ever considered doing games on network television? Uh, I only reason I got the Fox job was because Maury hustled for me and pitched me to Fox. And they took me on. So th I guess that's kind of where the difference is on the values of an agent. But I would say for anybody who's in their early days of being a, a, a broadcaster, no matter what the sport is, don't worry about it. Just, just call the games and get better. Call the games and get better. Like that's all that counts. So when you're in Pawtucket and you have this agent and you're looking to make this jump to Seattle – what's the major league interview process like for you? Is it a sit down? We got to fly out. I'm assuming they're paying for your flight out there. If they you did all the way from new England, man. I was like, all right, I am in the big leagues. There we go. Yeah. So, they, so they're paying for your flight. You're going out there. You're doing an interview. You're sitting down with them. I'm assuming you don't have to pitch them on your ideas <laughs> for exposure 
Let me tell you what I think we can do with our Twitter handle. Let me change <laughs> the name from at Mariners to at Goldie Mariners. It's, go <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it's obviously different going to the major leagues and there your primary responsibility, God forbid, is to do your job as a podcast. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's crazy. Like I always told myself when I was in Pawtucket, hey man, you're one step away. You're one step away, right? Like you, you're right there. You're on the cusp. And it wasn't until I got at the time Safeco Field, now T-Mobile Park, and started meeting people and shaking hands and talking to people and walking around where I was like, man, I am so far away from the big leagues. Like, this is so intimidating. This is so, like, I, I'm putting on this, like, I got my tie on and my Navy suit and my starch shirt and I'm, you know. But, man, inside, I'm just knocking knees. I am, like, really unsure of myself honestly um i didn't think i was at all ready for it at all ready for it uh, i had this like very false sense of confidence that i projected because i knew if i didn't i would have no shot and you're right we did first we did a phone interview and then they called me back and said we'd like to meet you in person we want to fly you out to seattle i'd never been to seattle before uh, of course i flew out the day before the interview and they put me up at a hotel across the street from the ballpark I remember the, my first meeting, I did, the, the, the day of, of interviews was exactly that, a day of interviews. And it was one after another. It was all scheduled out. And my first interview was at breakfast at the hotel restaurant. And it was our CEO and like our chief business, like our, our COO, like our head business guy who's no longer with the team now. And he's retired. And I'm thinking... Like, don't you have some like graphics design intern that I can have breakfast with or something to warm me up? Like you're, you're starting me off with like the five-star general of the Mariners. I mean, th is his day that full that we can't do this later? And <laughs> this is really bad for me. <laughs> and I also remember when we ordered, so it's like me and two like 50-year-old, 60-year-old dudes who know more about the business of baseball than I ever will, right? And they've done more interviews like this with punk kids like me than I can even bat an eye at. And, and I'm like, what do I order at breakfast that makes me look like kind of professional and not like what I want to eat, right? I mean, yeah. you have like the creme brulee French toast on the menu. And I'm like, man, if I, I'm looking at this menu and I'm thinking, if I order that, man, this whole thing's over. Like they're interviewing a kid, <laughs> right? They're interviewing a kid. If, if my breakfast comes with whipped cream, like I'm done. <laughs> and so I order first and I'm like, I'll take the um, I'll take the oatmeal, right? I'm like, yeah, oatmeal's professional. Like that's healthy. Like that's what real that's what like grownups order is oatmeal. And I'm like, I don't know. Like oatmeal's who wants to eat oatmeal, right? Like you only eat yeah. oatmeal if you have to eat oatmeal. And dude, our CEO goes, you know, I think I'll do the oatmeal too. Yes, <laughs> bang, yes, <laughs> guys, I'm ready. Where do you want me to sign this thing? I'm, let's do this right now. Oatmeal, I'm in. Only one year deal, that's fine. That's cool. Uh, so like, I, <laughs> I was, thought you were going to say got the creme brulee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. So Extra like, whipped cream. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like that's how much I'm overthinking this entire day, right? Like I'm, that's how nervous I am. Um, but I remember the, the hardest part of the interview, well, the two hardest parts was we went into a what's called the Griffey Room at T-Mobile Park. 
the boardroom and it's got all these mural it's a big mural thing at griffey all around like 360 it's amazing it's got like griffey signed jersey and helmet and spikes and all the other stuff that's and it was me it was like it was like seven on one six on one and it was all these people right like our head marketing guy who now is actually my boss uh like the our our radio producer our our tv director was in there for some reason uh rick riz the voice of the mariners was in there uh, the guy who was my boss for a while, who is now semi-retired, he was in there, who's like a, had been with the Mariners for a hundred years and was super important. Uh, I mean, it was, it was really intimidating, right? I mean, just rapid fire questions. I felt like coming at me all over the place. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how to answer these questions. I don't know what I'm doing here. And so I just tried to be as likable and as kind and as honest as I could be and have a, degree of humility, which was very easy to have while also trying to be confident. Little did I know that the hardest part was yet to come. We went to the radio booth after this meeting and I never, honest to goodness, I had never been in, I guess I take it back. I'd been in one big league radio booth one time for like five minutes. And that was in Arlington when I was with the Rough Riders, Eric Nadell, their Hall of Fame broadcaster, allowed me to come in the booth for an inning, which was incredible. But like a big league broadcast booth was total uncharted territory for me. And they take me into the home booth at Safeco Field, which is huge. It's by far one of the biggest booths in all of the majors. And we're looking right through the windows onto the ballpark. And it's just gorgeous. And just seems like the ballpark just goes on forever. The grass is the greenest grass I've ever seen. There's two tiers to the booth and we're going to do a mock recording. It's going to be me and Rick. And then uh, Mike Blowers, who's our analyst on TV, drove into the ballpark. Me, Blowers and Rick, we're going to do this like five minute tape, kind of what we call a round table. And the topic was going to be, they told me what the topic was the night before. And it was uh, the state of the American League West for 2013, which was the upcoming season. So I'd done some prep, of course, on the Mariners and the rest of the division. And so now I'm like, I'm like having to fake this chemistry and rapport with these two guys who I'm hoping to one day work with. And it's five minutes. And it's like, well, you know, if I don't say enough, then they have nothing to go off of. But if I talk the whole time, then I'm the overeager guy who's just hogging the mic, you know. So it was I, I was pretty confused <laughs> about what to do. And I just – did my best on it. And when it was over with, I remember thinking like, I have no idea if that was good or bad. And we had it in front of a, like a live audience. Like all the people who were in that meeting came into the booth and sat in the upper tier and were like looking down on us like this, just judging every word that we said. So good Lord. Yeah. It was, it was like really, but just for context, like I don't feel like that is, a cruel thing or a um, unrealistic thing for somebody else to go through or even like the worst, even though it wasn't bad at all. Like, I think that's a, like if I were the Mariners, I would have done the same thing. But as a 28 year old kid with like really not that much broadcasting experience, that was like steering the Titanic for me, man. Yeah. Like this thing is going to crash like for sure. Um, but it was, it was a, it was a, a, a scary day, an exciting day. And when it was all over with, I remember 
kind of like hearing the leaks of other people who interviewed in person. And some of those guys were former big league broadcasters who were just currently not working for a team. And when I heard that, I was like, well, like game over. I'm like, this is not going to happen. I mean, enjoyed the oatmeal, but we'll see you later. Yeah. Thanks for the oatmeal. Like this is not happening, man. Like why would they ever take a chance on me when they can go to the guy who's been in the big leagues for five years, six years. So I, at that point was, was very, I was actually, I was over the moon that I was 28 years old and had an in-person interview with the big league team. Like to me, that was like 10 years ahead of schedule. You know, I mean, I never thought that I was gonna get an in-person interview, maybe ever, let alone before I turned 30. So I was thrilled that my next time, the next time I would get an in-person interview that I would be way more confident, uh, have more experience, be able to anticipate better what questions were going to be asked. And I would, you know, be better. And so when they, when they offered me the job, I was, I mean, I knocked me over with a feather, man. I couldn't believe it at all. <laughs> what were some of the things that they asked you? What are some of those questions that they asked you in that interview? You know, some of it was some, I remember some basic things like who did I like to listen to? Who were my broadcast influences? And I'm sure they're trying to kind of get a feel for you know, what direction I like to go. You know, I remember them asking like, you know, am I more into telling stories on the air? Am I kind of more stat driven? Um, and I actually drew on my history brought background at that point and kind of, I was like, you know, I, I love stories. I studied stories in college. This is what I graduated with. And I, I hope this is my philosophy and actually comes across this day. I mean, I try to do both. I love numbers. I love stats. But anybody who really listens to me, I hope sees that I don't use stats unless there's a point to telling the stat. And hopefully it goes into a story of some kind. So uh, I, I really hopefully have a blend of both. And that's what I tried to communicate during the interview. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And I, I also tried to make very clear, and this was sincere, that um, I tried to use my youth as a strength and how Rick has been doing this for over 30 years. And Rick remembers what it was like to be, he was hired to the, by the Mariners when he was 28. Like Rick, you remember what it was like when you were 28, you got a big league job and how much you leaned on Dave, Dave Niehaus, the Hall of Famer, in your first few years, I said, I don't see why there'd be any difference in this situation. Like, I, I would be so grateful, obviously, to have this job, but to be put in a position where I can learn from someone who can teach me not only more nuts and bolts of actual play-by-play, but also just how to go about my day, right? What it's like to be in a big league clubhouse how to interview a big league manager, how that's different. If it's not different at all, just the process, right? Like it's different. Like there, this is not the international league anymore. So I tried to not hammer that home. I didn't use that as a crutch, but I definitely made them aware that I would take advantage of mentorship if this was offered to me. How did you get comfortable with the guys? Like once you're in Seattle, how did you overcome that overwhelming feeling of I don't belong here to hey, I do belong here. I got to go in the locker room. I got to get to know these guys on a personal level. I, that's one thing I've always tried to work on with me is, hey, look, let's just go in here and have a casual conversation. And the guys in the locker room don't feel like, oh, boy, here, here comes Aaron again. We got to do this circus again. <laughs> how, how did you overcome that? 
I think there's a few things I learned. First of all, you know, when I was really young, when I got the job, and there were some players who were kind of around my age, right? 25, 28, around there. Like some of the guys that I kind of gravitated to, I, I guess I kind of thought like I had to be, have to have more of a relationship than just broadcaster player. Because when you're in the minors and you're on the buses and you're in these little hotels, like you end up like seeing and hanging out with these guys a lot, even if you don't want to. It's just, it's almost unavoidable. Like you're going to go to a restaurant in some small, in Midland, Texas, and like your starting left fielder is going to be over there sitting at the bar eating lunch by himself. So you're going to sit down and eat with them, right? Like, and so I learned quickly, not through any bad experience, but I just learned that all you need is to have a working relationship with every player and every coach, just a working relationship. Like I just need to be able to approach any player or coach and ask them a question about what happened last night or what are you expecting today? That's it. And if more of a friendship develops in that, okay, that's great. But it doesn't need to. Like there's no need for that to happen. And just like in any other line of work, like there are going to be people you gravitate more than others, right? And there are going to be people who want to talk more than others. And let that happen on its own. Like just let that naturally happen. Don't ever try to go in with an agenda to force that to happen. And then the other thing too is don't linger. Like lingering will kill you. Like don't just hang out in the clubhouse to hang out in the clubhouse. Like when you're in there, go in there with an agenda. Now you might have to wait. Like if I'm trying to get an interview with Paul and you're in the trainer's room, I might have to wait there for 30 minutes till you show up. Like that's different. But what I'm saying is I've waited. I've done my interview with you. And now I'm just kind of hanging out looking around, seeing who comes by, right? Like, don't be that guy. Like that gets annoying to everybody really quickly. In terms of the crew in the booth, they've been gold to me from day one. I felt incredibly comfortable with them, like immediately. By the time training was over with, and we'd called 30 games of Cactus League Baseball, like I felt like we'd been doing this for a long time. Like I felt like a great rapport there. To me, the funny thing is, how long it took me to feel comfortable on the air, which only, only I could handle, right? That's yeah. only I can fix that. And man, it took me four or five years for real. Like it took a long time to really feel comfortable. And I don't think that that's unique. I think that's probably the case for a lot of people. When you, now it's different, right? If, if I went and I worked for another team, I would hope it would not take four or five years because I would have been in the big leagues for almost a decade. But if I've never been in the big leagues and I've never talked to this fan base before, it took me what felt like a long time to really feel like I could really be myself, have my humor come through, have people get to know me. Um, I I think that's pretty typical, man. And I think don't beat yourself up if it's taking you longer because I hear minor league kids say all the time, like, well, how do I find my style, right? Part of finding your style is feeling comfortable. And your first five years call to the minor leagues, you're still figuring it out. I mean, you're going to figure it out 20 years into it, but especially your first five years. So that those two things kind of go hand in hand. And that's, I think, finding your style and being comfortable are kind of like this. And it's, it's hard without just doing it every day to get a better feel for that. When you got the job with Fox doing basketball, and and those stuff in the winter 
Did you have to interview with anybody or was that purely through your agent? So it stemmed through my agent. I did interview. <clears throat> I went, I flew to LA and met on the Fox, went to the Fox studios to interview, which I, I really thought it was kind of more of a meet and greet. We had lunch. It was me and about three what'd you order guys. for lunch? It was, you know what? It was a cafeteria, way more uh, casual LA, you know, like opens bro, up the options, bro. I've been in the big leagues for a whole year. Okay. So I'm like, uh, whatever. I order whatever I want, you know, avocado toast, please, you know? <laughs> um, and I really didn't know that this was an interview. I just thought they were trying to meet me, see what I was like, you know, meet and greet type of thing. And at the end of what was probably a three or four hour session of lunch and then kind of going around and meeting some people, uh, my now ultimate boss at Fox, who was the main person interviewing me, just put his hand out <laughs> and he went to shake my hand and he said, hey man, really excited to have you aboard. <laughs> and I put my hand out and I was like, yeah me also i'll see you soon man this is this is happening then right i'm like i i remember just thinking like don't ask questions <laughs> <laughs> just say yeah can't wait for sure i remember getting in my car driving away and being like so am i like doing games for fox now i guess i am so it's great Hello. yeah it was yeah, it was very, it was very bizarre. I would not have anticipated it going that way. Really? So then from there, you, they just, you sign a contract and you go right into it? Yeah. You know, the, the Fox story is um, so unbelievable. It, it, it makes no sense at all. When I signed with my agent midway through the Mariners interview process, he made a request to me that is very realistic for any agent to make. He said, Right now, all you're doing is minor league baseball on the radio. Do you have any desire to call other sports, particularly on television? Because let's face it, they make money when I make money. And I'll make more money if I'm doing more than just minor league baseball on the radio. And I said, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I love football. I love basketball. I've called those sports a little bit on a very amateur level a very long time ago. And he said, well, we will be more serious about signing you if you can go get some mock tape of those two sports and let us listen to it. And it's the fall of 2011 and I'm living in Mansfield, Massachusetts calling game. The season for the Paw Sox had just ended. And so I'm like, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Look, let me figure that out. So I use my cachet as the voice of the Pawtucket Red Sox. And I reach out to Boston college. It's the middle of football season. And I say, hey, I'm the Postdocs guy. Do you have a, like an auxiliary radio booth that's empty for this weekend's game in Maryland? And they said yes. And they were very pleasant. And they said you can absolutely use it. So I, this is very bizarre. There's a guy, a terrific guy named Tim Britton, who uh, those who are Mets fans and those who are subscribers of The Athletic We'll know Tim. He's an incredible writer. At the time, Tim was covering the Red Sox and the Paw Sox for the Providence Journal. So I knew Tim really well. He was at our ballpark on a regular basis. And he was about my age, probably maybe even a little bit younger. And so I said, hey, Tim, hey, I got 50 bucks on the table here. 
can I pay you 50 bucks? And will you, will you drive to, to Boston college with me on Saturday and be my analyst for this mock game that I need to call? And he said, yes. And so Tim, who knew all about ACC football, because he went to college in the ACC, he went to Duke, and he was this incredible analyst. And it sounded like I had a real game because I had this analyst who knew what he was talking about and was actually pretty good. <laughs> like that was my football tape. Bam, done it. I'm out 50 bucks and I got a football tape. Well, then, uh, whatever, a month or so later, uh, non conference basketball starts. <clears throat> and I reach out to Providence College, right? The Friars. And I say the same thing. And they say, sure, we got a, we got a place for you on Media Row that you can. It was the opening game of Providence College basketball that year against New Jersey Institute of Technology. NGIT. Oh, NGIT. Yeah, there man. It is. Yeah. So we had an intern named Hal DeCourcy. And Hal and I kind of hit it off, a Postdocs intern. And Hal was really smart and knew a lot about sports. And I said, Hal, I got 50 bucks here for you. Will you drive to Providence with me Thursday night and be my fake analyst on a fake radio broadcast of Providence basketball? And he's like, I mean, 50 bucks to him at the time probably sounded like a thousand. He's like, absolutely. So boom, I got a tape and I got a basketball tape and we cut it up. I gave it to Maury. That was my demo. Fake Boston college football, fake Providence college basketball. And I'm like pretty bad, right? I mean, like I haven't called a basketball game in years and I haven't called a football game in years. What's more, I don't know anything about these two teams or four teams total that I'm calling for. So the, the incredible thing is the timing of all this. So I get the Mariners job in 2013. And we're really hoping that I can establish a relationship with Pac-12 Network they're, they're based in San Francisco. We play the A's. We stay in San Francisco. My agent says I've an interview for me to go speak with Pac-12 Network. Like, hey, you got a guy in Seattle, UW, right? Like, you, he, he can do soccer, volleyball, you know, whatever. Like, give me the Olympic sports because I've never been on TV before. And uh, I haven't called football or basketball in a long, long time. So our hope is Olympic sports on Pac-12 Network. I interview with Pac-12 Net, and they say something very understandable. They say, you know, Aaron seems like a good enough guy, but we're not comfortable having Aaron learn on our air. Like, we need him to be more seasoned. He doesn't know anything about these sports, and he's never been on TV before. In other words, check back with us when he's a little more seasoned, right? And I'm kind of bummed because that, to me, was like the easy in. But I'm not, I'm not surprised and I completely understand it. Well, at the same time, Fox Sports 1 is just about to launch. Yeah. At the end of like, the first game that FS1 aired was a Gus Johnson college basketball game for the 2013-2014 college basketball season. Okay. So we're like, we're, we're leading up to that period of time. It's the fall of 2013. Well, so my agent flies to LA to meet with the Fox executives because they got to build a whole stable of broadcasters for this new network. So he's talking to them about actual broadcasters that have real experience 
that they should really hire because they're actual broadcasters, right? Who've been on TV. And at the end of the meeting, he's got this slim jewel case with this CD that says Goldsmith on it. Right. And he kind of slides it across to him and says, Hey, um, you know, one other guy, you know, before we leave, uh, Aaron Goldsmith, the young guy got the Mariners job. He's their number two, just finished his first season of the big leagues. He lives in Seattle. You've got PAC 12 rights. You know, if you need somebody, maybe give Aaron, maybe give him some thought. And it was that CD that got me in the door with PAC with FS one. I ended up calling 10 PAC 12 conference games on FS1 that year. I called the PAC 12 tournament later that winter that led into college football, which led into major league baseball. Once they got a full major league baseball schedule on FS1 and PAC 12 network, then reached out and they were like, Hey, what, can you come do some basketball for us? We're like, yeah, "Yeah, absolutely. I can do some basketball for you, man. So, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. I never in my wildest dreams would have thought, when Tim Britton and I were calling uh, Maryland Boston College football into a digital recorder in a plywood booth at Boston College, that that would lead me to network television. But man, wow. everybody's every, and you never know how it can happen. You never know. Wow. Well, one last thing before uh, we wrap up here. I see over your right shoulder, you have a book that looks like it's signed by Bob Costas. All right. How did, how did that one come together? Yeah, it's, it's like the most un- unbelievable story of all time. I'll pick it up and bring it over in a second. Um, when I was in high school, m- my high school principal uh, thought I wanted to be a broadcaster because I said I want to be a broadcaster. And I said I want to be a broadcaster because I watched SportsCenter. So when you watch Sports Center and somebody says, what do you want to do when you grow up? You go, oh, I want to be on TV and talk about sports. I, I didn't want to be a broadcaster. I said I did. Like, I knew nothing about it. I took no steps to learn about it. It was just something <laughs> I said, right? Like what any high school kid would say. Well, my principal was walking around uh, at one of our uh, school baseball games, a freshman baseball game. And who was playing in that baseball game? but the son of Bob Costas because Bob's son played at a school in our conference. And so my principal saw Mr. Costas there and took it upon himself to introduce him. Tell him he's the principal of the school. Thank him for coming. And also say, Hey, we've got a young student who's interested in doing what you do for a living. Would you be willing to talk to him? And remarkably, Bob Costas said, I'd be happy to, here's my card. Have him call my assistant. And we'll set up a time. We were like two weeks, three weeks away from, from the end of the school year. So once school ended, I set up a time for the summer to go in and, and meet with Mr. Costas. And I was a young kid. I was, I don't know, a, early, early in my high school career. And I never interviewed anybody before. I really didn't know what to ask. I mean, honest to goodness. I had read his book. A Fair Ball by Bob Costas. It's a New York Times bestseller, you know. And uh, that was it, man. Like, I I was pretty clueless, but I was thrilled out of my mind I was going to meet Bob Costas, let alone talk to him. Well, he had an office. Like, you would think he would just work from home, but he had an actual office in St. Louis. A small office, of course. It was a 
his office, an empty office, a waiting room, and um, essentially an assistant who I set this appointment up with. So I put on my suit. I drive to his office. I sit down in the lobby, small little lobby. I can see into his office through the door that's open. There he is. He's leaned back in his big leather chair. He's talking on the phone. I introduced myself to his assistant, who was very nice, very, very kind woman. And she says, uh, Aaron, uh, want to take a seat right here. Uh, Bob will be with you shortly. So I hear Bob hang up the phone and oh my, right. Like he's hanging up the phone. Like he's going to come out here. Like this is no turning back now. Yeah. Like, and like, you know, like I've never met a famous person before. Like this is, this is my total first. And it's somebody who I really think highly of. And so he walks over to the seat in the lobby and I stand up and I put my hand out and I say, Mr. Costas, it is such an honor to meet you. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. And he says, oh, Eric, it's my pleasure. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm so starstruck and flabbergasted and I have no idea what to do. And I'm just like, well, I'm not going to correct Bob Costas. Just nod and smile and let's like, let's do this thing, right? Like, let's, let's start talking. So he takes me back to his office. And at the time, the way that you would record things the high tech way to record things was on mini disc and I had a mini disc player. And so I had brought this little microphone on my mini disc player. And I asked him if I could record the interview and he said, yes. So I'm setting up the technology on his desk and, uh, he, Oh, hello, Moana. We have a new, uh, <laughs> what do we have now a mask. She watched oh, yeah. the movie and come back. Yeah. Oh, we got a right. whole new costume. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. we got our frozen t-shirt on. This big brother is doing something this whole time. So um, I say, you know, can I record this? And he says, yes. As I'm, and as I'm setting up the mini disc player, he calls me Eric again. And I, I, I have no initiative to say my name's Aaron. Like, I, I'm so afraid. I'm so you afraid. Can't, you can't get too far down the hole because then you have to commit to it. Exactly. Well, so this is what happens. When you listen to the, and I have the mini disc, and I, I, I've digitized it. Dude, he gave me 45 minutes of his life. He let me, punk high school Aaron, who knows nothing, nothing, talk to him in his office for almost an hour. And when you listen to the tape, you hear him multiple times. Eric, you, you know when you hear a broadcaster say blah, blah, blah. Or Eric, you've heard it when. And finally, after like the fourth one, I'm like, you know, hey, man, grave is dug. Like, I'm Eric. Like, I'm 100% Eric. Like. And honestly, after a while, I'm like, this is so cool that I'm here. You can call me Jim if you want. Like, I don't care at all. Like, I rationalized it in the moment. I'm never going to see this guy again. He's going to forget about me the second I walk out this door. It doesn't really matter, right? What matters is that I'm here talking about Costas in his office, which was his office was everything was autographed and it was him in every picture with somebody famous. It was incredible. So we're getting up to leave after 45 minutes of him putting up with me. And I brought the book with me because I wanted to show that I wasn't just some punk kid. I actually read his book. And he said, hey, would you like me to, to sign that book for you? And I had honestly going to say no intentions of getting an autograph. The experience meant a hundred times more than a signature would. But I said, yeah, sure. That'd be, that'd be great. So I put the book down on the desk and I, my eyes start going to all over his office. I want to see all these pictures and all these autographs and everything else. And then I just hear him say, Oh, Hey, um, 
is that Eric with a C or a K? And I look down to the book and he has written to E-R-I and he's just waiting. Like the pen is like bleeding out onto the paper, waiting for my command to what the letter is. And so I do, I did what all of us would do is I just said, oh, it's with a C. And so he autographs it to Eric, hands me the book. And now at this point, man, now I'm crushed. Like I was totally fine with him calling me Eric, but to have it like documented and have this like ruined autograph is crushing. So I'm, I'm trying to regain myself mentally, not show that this is a really bad thing. <laughs> so we walk out of his office. We walk into this small little lobby and his, uh, secretary receptionist is right there who I set this whole appointment up with, who's been so nice to me. And Bob says, uh, Eric, it was great meeting you. Thank you for coming in. And she says, Bob, his name isn't Eric. It's Aaron. And Bob says, well, no, it's not. It's Eric. And then they both just stare at me like, just <laughs> like right out of top gun, like missile lock, like, just eyes, daggers, both of them standing shoulder to shoulder. And then Bob says, well, oh my gosh, I hope your name isn't actually Aaron and you've been too polite to correct me when I've been calling you Eric. And when he said that, I thought, I'm done, I'm out. Like, I have to come clean now, right? This is over. So I said, yeah. Actually, uh, Mr. Costas, my, my, name, my name actually is, and he cuts me off and goes, great, then, then it's Eric. And I said, Yep. And I peeled out of there, man, like just sprinted. I mean, gone. And I get in the car and I'm, I'm not on the verge of tears, but man, it felt like I was like, I was just crushed. Right. So I tell my principal about this, who set up this whole interview so kindly. And for Christmas, uh, that year, he hands me another copy of Bob's book. And I'm like, Hey man, too soon, right? Like, <laughs> Still an open like, wound. Yeah, like I know what happened. And I open up to the title page. I'll get this down. I... So the first one, this is all going to be backwards, isn't it? No, this doesn't all go over. No, I know. It's good. It's front ways. Right. So this is the first one. It says, To Eric, see you in the booth someday, Bob Costas. And then the second one says, To Aaron, but may I call you Eric? Maybe you'll be the second Aaron in the Hall of Fame, broadcaster's wing. Best wishes, Bob Costas. So, wow. yeah. So I, for years, for, since, since high school, I had these two books and I kept them safely on my bookshelf. Um, and I always knew that I wanted to do something special with it. I'll set that right there. Uh, and when we moved to Seattle, I, for whatever reason, like, like my career had been validated. So now I could get this framed. And so I was thought this is the time. And so I, I took it to a frame shop course and um, put in the money for it. And it's obviously it's an remarkably, incredibly strange story. Uh, I can really laugh at it now. It was crushing to the time, but it's a truly one of a kind piece of memorabilia that means so much to me. I remember when you and I met last year, I know somebody um, named Andrew Goldstein. Okay. Uh, we know each other on Twitter. I, I've never met him in person, but we know each other on Twitter. And so I see his tweets all the time. I remember when I met you, uh, we met it before the Xavier game. And after the game, 
I was working down on the court shooting some video and you and I had gone to breakfast and, you know, we had a great conversation. So I was like, all right, I don't know when I'm going to see him again. I'll go up to you after the game and make sure I reconnect, say thanks and I'll let you go. It's going to be quick. And I noticed right after the game, you were peeling out of there real fast. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't you know. Maybe you had a flight. To, I don't remember what the, what the game was, if it went long or whatever. It was like game and, and you were out of there and I was like, all right, I just got to go up and say hi. And I went right from my video position over to the broadcast table. And I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure I go, Andrew, Andrew. <laughs> and then I'm walking away and I'm going, that's Aaron Goldsmith, not Andrew Goldstein. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like this is, this is one of the best, like, I, I was like, we really hit it off today. Like I, he, he and I like, that was one of the best conversations I've had networking wise. I blew it. I blew it. He's never going to talk to me again. Like, this is it. Then I was listening to that podcast you did uh, on the voice behind the voice. And I heard that story about Bob. I was like, all right, I think he can relate to this one. Yeah, I don't know sure. if I did, but I'm, I'm pretty sure halfway across the, the court, what caught your attention was Andrew. Hey, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I vaguely remember that. I vaguely remember that. Uh, it's funny. It's, 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 it's happened worse to me. And now I know I, I, I will correct people now when they say, but you know, the funny thing is people call me Eric, like all the time. If I, uh, can I get a name for the order? Aaron, Eric, what? <laughs> no, Aaron. So like, it wasn't just Bob. It, it, it's, it's a lot of people for some reason. Maybe it's the way I'm saying my name. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, you got it, man. Appreciate it. Oh, and your daughter. Oh, oh son, oh, son. Yeah. Uh oh, Jackson. You want to get the whole hi, crew? Hi. Hey, Jackson. How are you? Who your favorite player is? Baseball player. Uh, I like it. Ton. You like it? Ton. Omar Narvaez. Omar Narvaez. Kyle Seagull. Yeah. Who else? And Daniel Vogelback and Tom Wolfie. Tom Murphy. Okay. Okay. Vogelback. There we go. Yeah, we got a strong Mariners core there. Okay. Okay. All right. Hey, uh, who's your favorite Nationals player? Uh, I like. Uh, I like. Um, Juan Soto and uh, what's that other guy that got traded? They're Anthony Rendon. No, you, you like Howie Kendrick. Kendrick. You like he's a hit it oh, Howie Kendrick. Yeah, Felton. there we go. Oh, I like yeah. Here, oh, you like Anthony Rendon? Hold on, Anthony Rendon. Got it somewhere. Oh, maybe I don't. Oh, oh wait, yeah, right here. I got a uh, towel from the World Series. Oh, look, World Series towel, man. Go Nats. Jackson became a big Nationals fan of the World Series. Yeah, one of my friends. I didn't get to go, but one of my friends was there, and she sent it to me. That was great. Maybe, maybe Why, I'll put, put that on the wall. Put on the yeah, wall. Yeah, put that, put, put that up, you know, right? What do we think? Like right there? That'd be great. Cool. Um, well, Eric, Aaron, I appreciate hey, it. All the same. Uh, got it, man. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Stay safe with everything. All Stay right, healthy. man, Paul. Great seeing you, man. Work on that. Work on those decorations a little bit, okay? Yeah, we'll, we'll have to check back in with you. Doesn't Paul's right. room look sad? <laughs> yeah, so sad. You, your room has so many more pictures on it. And he's an adult, too. Put well, that, that's a loose way to use that word. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hope you all enjoyed that interview with Mariners broadcaster Aaron Goldsmith, and hope you're as excited as I am for baseball to come back a month from yesterday, July 23rd. There's going to be two games. Four teams will play that day, and then the other 26 teams will play on the 24th as opening day. 60-game season. I think it's 60 games and 66 66-
days. It's going to be a sprint. Usually baseball is the marathon sport through the dog days of summer and everything, but it's a sprint this year. It's going to be exciting, and it's right around the corner. We're so close to the big four sports coming back. Well, if you did enjoy this podcast, again, you can subscribe wherever you're listening, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all the rest. And while you're there, leave a review if you can. Leave a rating. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again on Paul's Points.